Welcome to NANCAST. I'm Jill, your host, bringing you another episode on hot topics in neonatology. As the opioid crisis continues, mothers are becoming increasingly aware of the risks of using prescription and non-prescription opioids during pregnancy. There seems to be a trend among pregnant women towards seeking alternatives to opioid painkillers, such as heroin and oxycodone. Kratom and CBD are two such substances that are on the rise and has potential to be a source of withdrawal for newborns. Many obstetricians, neonatologists, and nurses are unaware of these new supplements and how many mothers are using it. We as NICU nurses need to be familiarized with the potential effects of these substances to our patients. And if we aren't aware of these substances, how can we adequately diagnose and treat our babies? Do they show signs of withdrawal? How do we treat them? One nurse, Maureen Shogan, is going to shed some light on newer prenatal drugs and how they are impacting the newborn. Maureen is currently the clinical director for a National Institute on Drug Abuse Phase II million-dollar project on developing neonatal abstinence curriculum for mobile devices. An app for NAS scoring is included in the project. She is an active member of the Washington State Perinatal Collaborative, as well as the Washington State Pregnant and Parenting Opioid Work Group. It's my pleasure to welcome Maureen to the podcast. Let's get right into it. Hi, Maureen. Thank you for joining us today. I know that in my clinical experience, I haven't been exposed to Kratom and moms that are taking it. Um, Could you let us know what is Kratom and why do people use it? Sure. Kratom is um, uh, derived from a plant that's grown in Southeast Asia. um, It is uh, basically the uh, active ingredient is metabolite um, 7-hydroxymitragenine. And the reason that people take it, the one that I found in my clinical practice most often, is that um, women are trying to wean themselves from uh, from opioids. And so this is one of those particular um, substances that is very interesting uh, based on the the dose. If you take it in a a lower dose, like one to five uh, grams, um, it's, it's used as a stimulant, but, uh, higher doses anywhere from six to 60 grams is, um, what individuals would try and uh, use for their opioid withdrawal. And as a result, you still get the same kinds of effects. It's not an opioid. So Kratom is not an opioid, but it acts on the opioid receptors. So you will get, um, some of the opioid-like types of, um, side effects such as constipation, um, or itching. It comes in um, a powdered form. The leaves are, are pretty large, just kind of open up the palm of your hand, and that would be about the size of the palm of, uh, or the size of one of the leaves. It's ground up, and sometimes it's uh, taken in the form of a tea. Uh, other times it's ground up into a very, very fine uh, powder. To me, it looks like a yellowish, very light green powder, and it's placed in capsules. And each one of the capsules is approximately uh, 0.5 grams. So if someone were taking 60 grams per day, that would be taking 120 capsules per day. And um, this is one way that some individuals, instead of going to medication-assisted treatment uh, program or going to counseling, will buy at a convenience store. They can buy it online. Um, I have signs around... um, town here. I live very close to a Veterans Administration hospital, 
and um, there's a big sign that says um, um, Kratom CBD and vape juice available. So it's I see it quite a quite a bit here. I paid more attention to it since an article came out in Pediatrics a couple of years ago related to women uh, taking either in a tea form or um, uh, capsules in which their babies went through withdrawal because the way it does attach to the to the uh, opioid receptor sites. Um, individuals can have um, tremors, sometimes um, anorexia, sometimes psychosis, and they're having reports of overdoses so that um, sometimes Kratom is found on toxicology along with um, heroin or oxycodone or um, when, when individuals do overdose. There's not very many cases in which uh, Kratom is the sole uh, um, substance which is found. The other thing is Kratom is not found on a regular urine toxicology. Like if someone came into the emergency department and you get a screen and it's usually five um, classes of drug, Kratom's not there. But I do know that in our medication assisted treatment program um, here in Spokane, it is a drug that is assessed for when women come in for um, their their UAs. So, but you, you have to to really request it and 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 um, ask for it. So the um, uh, a couple of months ago, it really hit home for me. In which I have a very good friend, and she told me she was going to to be with another friend of hers. In which um, this friend's um, child was um, found unresponsive um, on the bathroom floor. And so the mother uh, found the child and had to give CPR to her 40-year-old child. And um, they were admitted to the ICU, intubated, on a ventilator for four days. And the adult child had vomited and aspirated a greenish substance. His history was multiple joint surgery. So he'd been on um, um, uh, opioids for his, for his pain. But his mom, after coming home from the... Um, from the hospital that first day, found two bags of Kratom capsules, 160 in each bag in the child's home. Now, this this person is a professional and um, was very close as far as in the, the rung of um, very close to a, the CEO type of, um, type of status. So after five days, the individual was off the ventilator, took three attempts, and then um, was placed on Subutex or buprenorphine. So that would be exactly what we would do if the person had been taking heroin or um, um, uh, oxycodone. But um, still unclear whether that individual still was taking a combination of Kratom and the the pain relievers. So um, the the, um, outcomes for newborns, interestingly enough, is there were were, uh, case studies that were published in uh, pediatrics um, and also in um, obstetrics and gynecology in 2018. And that's when I really first heard about it or really paid attention about it. We were asking our moms about it. But when we talked to the um, uh, staff in the, our medication-assisted treatment programs or what we used to call the uh, methadone programs, they would say, oh, yes, we see several um, uh, people who will come in. I live on the eastern side of Washington State. I'm only about 20 minutes from Idaho. But I do know also in the Seattle area, which is about a five-hour drive for me on the west side of the state, that they also um, are seeing that uh, as well. So it's a a drug in which 
Um, a couple of states have um, made it illegal. It is um, considered legal. Um, as far as the U.S. goes, it's not considered a, a Schedule One drug. But there was movement about 2019 um, to take it off the market and make it a Schedule One drug. But states such as Wisconsin and Indiana and uh, Alabama, Arkansas, and Vermont, it's, uh, it's illegal. And there are certain cities around the United States in which those municipalities have, have made it illegal, such as San Diego and, and uh, Saratoga, um, uh, Florida, and then a couple of cities, Monument and Parker in, um, in Colorado. So as far as currently, it's, it's, it's very legal uh, for, for individuals to, to um, buy. I think one of the things that we get very concerned about is um, kratom use in, in pregnancy and how does that affect that? How does that affect the fetus or how does that affect the newborn? And a, a case study uh, by Smith and OB2YN in 2018, the mom had adjusted it as a tea. So she had daily, uh, had it daily as a, a tea and she used it for opioid withdrawal. She used it for seven months um, prior to verifying that she was pregnant at 16 weeks. She then discontinued the kratom, but she restarted it when her symptoms of um, going through withdrawal reappeared. So on a UA tox, um, there were 980 nanograms per deciliter, and the reference is less than one. So she had significant amounts there. She was um, she went into a, a program and placed on 8 milligrams or um, was stabilized on 8 milligrams of buprenorphine. And then... Um, she had severe depression. She asked to remain on the buprenorphine, but maintained about two milligrams. So her baby was born at 39 weeks, no evidence of uh, neonatal abstinence syndrome or neonatal opioid withdrawal, which is, would, even though it's not an opioid, the symptoms would very much um, be the same. Baby was able to groom in, breastfeed, and did go home with the mom at day three. So that was a, a pretty, good, pretty good outcome. In um, another case, there was a mom that presented to the emergency department at 19 weeks, and um, she was concerned. She, the reason she had um, brought herself to the emergency department was for withdrawal secondary to smoking kratom. So she smoked it. Um, so she would have taken the leaves and, and rolled it and, and smoked it. But she had a history of IV heroin use. Uh, her last use was six months prior. She um, had bipolar disorder. And um, she, this is, moms want to do the best for their babies. They really do. And this particular mom um, had been abstinent for 10 to 12 hours. So she had not taken the Kratom for 10 to 12 hours. Going through withdrawal, the reason she discontinued, because she wanted to decrease the risk for her baby. So she was really, really thinking about her baby, but she was in withdrawal. Um, and, and that's pretty scary when you're pregnant to go through withdrawal in when people may have told you that, that you may not. So um, she then was hospitalized, placed on buprenorphine, and uh, discharged on day three. She switched to e-cigarettes. She had been a smoker, and she was induced at 39 weeks. Mom and baby were discharged at day two. However, the baby was readmitted on day of life four and treated with, um, treated with morphine. So the baby was probably not withdrawn from Kratom, but was withdrawn from um, the buprenorphine. So the baby was able to wean off and discharged on hospital day, day 12. Um, 
this is a, another case study uh, by Eldritch and Pediatrics in 2018. This particular mom um, drank Kratom tea. She um, last used oxycodone two years ago before her delivery. She had a negative UA on, on admit. The baby was small for gestational age. At 33 hours, um, the baby had symptoms of neonatal opioid withdrawal, of sneezing, jitteriness, excessive suck, some facial excoriation. So the baby was, was definitely going through withdrawal. And the Finnegan score had gone up to 14 before they started the, the MS. Interesting on this baby, I'm not exactly sure why, but the baby went into some sinus bradycardia. They rapidly um, weaned, um, so the baby was, was totally off the um, morphine by day three. The scores um, bound, rebounded back up between 11 and 13, and then they started clonidine. Um, clonidine was uh, discontinued at day five, and the um, mom and the baby were able to go home together day six. The dad disclosed the mom's use throughout the pregnancy, so she used it to help her sleep and also for withdrawal symptoms. So those were the two reasons that that particular mom, mom used, the, used her Kratom. So we don't know a whole lot about Kratom use. We've got these three case studies. We do know that um, moms will use Kratom for their, um, on their own to try and go through their own opioid withdrawal without going into treatment, without seeing a healthcare professional. I did have a child and family services worker ask me in a workshop once. She said, I've got clients who use Kratom. Would you recommend that they just go ahead and go uh, get Kratom? And I said, no, because one of the things as far as medication-assisted treatment is the counseling that goes with it. To look for the underlying, as far as substance abuse, or substance, excuse me, substance use disorder is... Um, there's so multifaceted. So no, I would not say, hey, go just right down here to your uh, friendly little um, gasoline grocery store and uh, go ahead and pick some up. And this is a dosage start out. I would never, never, ever do that. The other thing is I did go buy some. I went into um, a place that is every, every time I uh, come home from work was right on the way. And I needed it for a photograph for one of my lectures. So I went in and got it. It's, it's absolute. I, all I know is I bought some gold, which is there are so many different components. I had to go online and read about it because there's red vein, green vein, yellow vein, and um, online you'll get all kinds of information. They're public websites. They're not professional websites by any means. But the interesting thing is those particular, the capsules were not marked and neither was the little Ziploc bag. So there were no identification of contents, no identification of how many milligrams per, how many grams or per, how many capsule. So, and again, you really never know what some of these substances are going to be mixed with um, as well. That's, um, it's, um, it's, a, it's a throw of the dice when, when you're dealing with these kinds of things. So no, I'd, I'd never recommend it, but because it's so easily accessible and in my Part of Eastern Washington, the signs are, and they're big signs, they're huge posters, you know, bulk Kratom available, one of the places um, you go to. So anyway. So do you think because Kratom doesn't normally show up in a typical urine drug screen, we are seeing these moms doing it so they don't get the negative effects of, you know, the stigma, oh, you do this or, you know, whatever drug of choice they did. And hope that they can fly, you know, essentially under the radar 
by doing the kratom. Um, so do you think in the future it would be something that we could do as an add-on to a urine drug screen to maybe see if mom was using? I mean, is it that popular that we should be concerned about it as far as adding it to our urine drug screens? Like I know we add fentanyl now to our typical urine drug screens. And is that the wave of the future now, you believe, with, with these substances? I think one of the things that we have to do is, number one, and I'm so glad that everybody has joined this podcast to get information on this, is that we get educated so then we can talk to our moms and we can ask the questions. So, you know, if we see that a baby has um, symptoms of, of withdrawal, the first thing I always ask about is nicotine. You know, do you vape? How much do you vape? Because it mimics so much. And um, it, we are asking fewer tobacco questions and more nicotine questions. And that's a, that's a key that I brought it up at our state level as well. And also asking um, about how much Kratom do you use? And they'll say, I have no idea what you talk about. Or they'll say, oh, maybe I take, and they'll tell you milligrams because the, the verbiage is like, you know, usually 0.5 milligrams in a capsule, usually. And they would tell you how many capsules they take. And again, the stigma is not going to be there because it's not heroin. And I'm not um, trying to um, get oxycodone or hydrocodone and steal it from my, from my grandma. Um, and, but it's creative because here's the other thing. It's natural. It's natural. It's from a plant. It's uh-huh. natural. Kind of like cannabis, you know, is natural. And so, um, it's been very interesting at our medication assisted treatment program that it is routine on the screen. Now that's not true all over the state. It was, uh, I had gone to a meeting, um, <clears throat> about six months ago over in Seattle and the, the people from all over the state were there. So it was, was a good sharing time that individuals at other MAT um, centers then said, well, maybe we should start start looking for this. I think it would be one thing that um, if, again, you know, the nicotine, we think, well, no nicotine, we don't have, you know, hypoglycemia is not, not an issue for the baby. It's not positive for any of the other opioids. To then ask the, the um, practitioner, can we go ahead and get a uh, mitrogenine? Um, for on this mom and um, or on this on this baby Um, and I'm trying to think as far as looking at umbilical cord tissue I don't believe that any of the companies there's one company that may um, start to um, have that on their their panel but um, that would be one thing to to also think about as well yeah I think you know when you're in nursing school and you're dealing with adult patients, you always, they always tell you, ask what kind of herbal medications they take. Cause you know, and, but I, I don't think we automatically think that with um, what, when we're dealing with the babies, like what did mom take, you know, and, and the interactions, we know how um, illegal drugs interact with the uh, different kinds of psych meds these moms are on as well. So, you know, you wonder what, what's Kratom, if they're taking Kratom, how does that interact with all of the other medications that mom's on? Um, the her Xanax, her, you know, Wellbutrin and, and other medications that she may be prescribed. Exactly. So exactly. now you were showing us those case studies and talking about how the baby seemed to be able to go home rather quickly after exposure to Kratom in utero. But um, what kind of 
effects do you normally see? Like, what should the nurses be looking out for, for, you know, withdrawal symptoms from, from Kratom? Is it always mimic other illicit drugs or is it, or, or, or opioids, or is it something a little bit more different? I think that one of the things is when you look at um, the site of action is going to be the, the mu and the kappa receptor sites, which are exactly the same sites that um, the other opioids, um, heroin, methadone, um, fentanyl, etc. So one of the key things that, that happens is when you have the um, stimulation of those uh, receptor sites and also an increase in, um, really what happens is an increase in norepinephrine. And so then the, the symptoms are basically going to be the same as a result of that increase in norepinephrine or um, changes in serotonin and changes in dopamine. So you would, you would definitely see um, the jitteriness, um, sleeplessness, um, irritability, um, excessive suck, and um, oh, excoriation from um, movement, um, excessive movement. Um, and uh, tremors at rest, rest as far as all, and also as well, uh, disturbed tremors. So pretty much, pretty much the same kind of um, thing that that you would see um, with with opioid withdrawal. And you would treat that the same. Like you mentioned getting buprenorphine, neonatal morphine. So it would be the same course of treatment for those clinical presentations as well. So you would score them and, and treat them the same as if they were exposed to a normal uh, opioid, prescription opioid or, or heroin that mom was taking. Right. I think one of the, the things, too, is to think of the, the comfort care. Because comfort care and having the mom room in, if you've got uh, a particular area where she can room in and it can be quiet and it not a lot of visitors in the room, comfort care, we've definitely found, has been um, an incredible tool in our toolkit which can um, many times prevent the administration or the need, prevent the need for um, opioids, uh, administration of morphine or, or methadone to the newborn. So um, I would go non-pharmacologic care um, for the baby just as we're, we're moving towards now. Um, and it's very interesting. It's East Coast, West Coast, uh, where we have, uh, it's usually how it happens, uh, comfort care or um, um, looking at the um, group in Yale and also Boston Medical Center with Eat, Sleep, and Soul. So looking at non-pharmacologic care first, and then if you did have a baby who um, really was in, unable to sleep or eat or, or console well, then consider you know having group, group huddle and then considering uh, morphine or methadone, whatever drug is used um, for neonatal withdrawal. But I think the, the, the major thing is looking at the mom being the medication. So having the mom and the baby together, if you've got that particular geographic uh, ability in, in your units or on your mom-baby unit. Oh, yeah. I think that would be a very good other podcast to talk about the benefits of eat, sleep, console versus the traditional treatment for neonatal abstinence. But because um, I know I've heard many arguments on both sides. And, you know, unfortunately, some places just can't accommodate Right. Eat, sleep, console. But I, I think we try to use the moms as, as best as possible. And so that's another discussion for another day. Yes. Uh, 
So we discussed earlier how, you know, we really have to have a, a thorough discussion with mom as far as what else she's taking, um, if she's, you know, in and taking other kind of herbal supplements like Kratom. And, and we do find out that mom's taking that, um, you know, with her with, for her withdrawal. Um, what would be the next step, you know, to get mom, um, you know, in a, in a treatment program? Like, what would we do to help mom work her way through that so she can be the best for her, for her baby um, when the baby goes home? Right. I think one of the things that has been helpful is um, I'm aware of other moms who've come in and they've been using Kratom, trying to um, get off of their particular drug of choice, whatever it was. But I think from a safety standpoint, um, what would be one thing that you may want to consider is to go into um, either um, a treatment or to be able to see an individual who can prescribe uh, buprenorphine which is um, very safe, and um, we can um, give lower levels. It's very consistent because I think sometimes it's difficult to know exactly um, what you're getting in, in your Kratom, so that that would be one thing that um, for you to, to be able to consider to, to do that because there's a lot of different um, ways that individuals are able to help and provide services, not just with, with the... Um, um, suboxone or buprenorphine or, or subutex, but in other um, avenues, counseling, etc. Yeah, I know like in the treatment program that's affiliated with the hospital that I worked at, um, you know, the group therapy and their, their therapy is what really helps drive all of their, um, you know, how their progress is in their program. So it, that is very important. And if they miss that, if, if they're trying to, you know, self-treat themselves with Kratom. So that is really important because the baby's only going to do as well as mom does, you know, after they're discharged. So we have to really, you know, look at that as a family-centered care and make sure that we're offering mom as much support as we give the baby and our NICU. Exactly. And I think when you get into group care, because um, I know that through RMAT, there's um, um, groups with moms and babies together. And so it's those moms, those women understand other women and they feel less stigma. Um, there as well. I think how we approach uh, non-stigmatizing is absolutely essential. And I think one of the, the key things is looking at it from the standpoint is this mom is really trying to do what she believes is best for her baby. And she believes that if I can switch from heroin or all the burglaries or stealing or whatever I have to do to try and get other drugs or money for the other drugs, um, if I can do this in a safer way, so that's also the perception that Kratom is safer when, in fact, um, you know, you can't overdose, especially, um, we definitely know with other drugs on board. So we also have to look at the strengths. So we have to look, look at strength-based yeah. for our moms as well. We're talking about Kratom and how we are seeing this as a new substance, um, emerging um, with our pregnant moms, but we're also seeing women using other substances like CBD oil um, and different CBD products that are out there. They're everywhere. You can get them online. You can get them at your daily, any store that you go to. Um, how does that differ from THC? And that's something that we're used to seeing, but you know, how is the CBD different? Right. So, so CBD is a compound in the, in the cannabis plant, just as THC is, but THC is the psychoactive component. 
Um, CBD, um, very few psychoactive effects. And in order to be called CBD in the United States, you have to have a product that's less than 0.3% THC. So that's what the, the ground rules are. And CBD is usually um, made from hemp. And one of the things that happened in um, oh, December of 2019 is that there was a change, a federal, a federal law change that hemp was no longer considered Schedule 1. So it's much easier for farmers now to um, farm the, the hemp plant. If you drive along it, it really looks like marijuana. Um, it's very difficult for, for individuals to see the difference. But um, CBD does, does come from hemp. There's no uh, short-term memory issues, no sedation. The key thing about um, uh, CBD is it's used for a lot of different things used as an anti-emetic, used in, as an analgesic, um, used for itching for your mosquito bites. But one thing the Food and Drug Administration has very, very strongly said, you may not sell that product and stipulate that this is what you can use it for because they will write the manufacturer a letter and say you've gone uh, beyond the boundaries. So what the companies do is they title their particular product um, something like relax or sleep or um, energy or um, better living. So the other thing that's very interesting, I uh, found a whole entire display in a huge, huge grocery store chain. And um, I was just pretty shocked and appalled it was in the pharmacy department. So what does that do? It really, really uh, legalizes that uh, a great deal. However, the statement that came out October 20th of 2019 um, from the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA strongly advises against the use of cannabidiol or CBD, tetrahydrocannabinol or THC, and marijuana in any form during pregnancy or while breastfeeding. And one of the um, studies that uh, came out in July of 2020 had to do with the what actually was in CBD because it's not regulated by the Food and Drug Administration. You, we don't know if it's safe. We don't know if it's effective. We don't know what dosage is considered safe. We don't know how it interacts with other drugs or foods. We don't know if there's dangerous um, interactions, other safety concerns. Uh, not to be confused with the cereal we get with hemp seed in it, Okay, so hemp seed's okay to be in food. There's no objections as far as the FDA is concerned regarding it as a food ingredient, but they are very concerned about it as far as um, CBD. So cannabidiol, is, it's against the law for it to be added into food, but you see it in gummies, you see it in everything. There's been um, uh, questions, can you have a positive UA for THC if you do CBD? Well, I was one of those very naive, very, well, it's, it says if it's 0.3%. No, you wouldn't have a positive UA um, until I, I ran into a, a waiter and he told me, oh, I've been using CBD and I'm positive on my UA for THC. So I started looking. And one of the key things, Von Miller and Vondry out of um, Baltimore, 84 samples, one-fourth contained the stated amount that was on the label, one-fourth had THC in, in it enough for impairment and intoxication, and one-fourth had less CBD than advertised. 
And so that was in 2017. But in 2020, uh, 2020, July 2020, there was a report to the U.S. House Committee on Appropriations and the Senate Committee on Appropriations that came out from the FDA um, the, I think, second week of July. 147 different products they tested. They tested 411 cannabinoids. Um, 49% contained more than 0.3%. So half contained THC more than the minimal level. One product even had three grams of THC in it. Um, uh, 102 of the products listed on the label, the CBD amount that was supposed to be there, only 45% actually contained that amount. 18% had less than 80% of the amount listed. And 37% contained at least 120% of the amount listed because there's no FDA regulation. So Congress basically has told the FDA, you've got to go back, you've got to know, do more research, and you have to, we've, we've got to have a better handle on this. So because it's so readily available, as you said, it's, nor, it's been normalized. And um, since we don't know what can happen, we don't know what the effects are during pregnancy, there would be no way I, as a healthcare professional, would say to a pregnant woman, sure, go ahead, because they believe nurses are the most trusted, most honest. I would never say that. I would never make that recommendation. And someone told me that they were, I'd say, I would rethink that and I would probably cite these particular um, um, uh, studies that were that were done. The other thing that's disconcerting is CBD calls to poison control centers and they're going up exponentially. So in, 2000, in 2018, there were 519 calls throughout the United States. 2000, that was 2018, 2019, 1,529, so it tripled. And um, in the first six months of uh, 2020, 921, which would get us a trajectory of about 1,800 calls to the, the poison center. So what we know about CBD in pregnancy and breastfeeding, I love this slide. It's one of my favorite slides to show. This is what we know about CBD in pregnancy. And all the rest of it's blank. We know zero. <laughs> we know zero. So that's for me because... We're growing little brains when we're pregnant. I mean, we're doing so much. And it would be just a tragedy if later on we found out down the line um, what these effects could be. I'm very, very conservative in this area because I've, I've worked with moms and babies for several decades. And anything we can do to prevent any um, mishap from occurring, um, I'm all for it. So that, I'm very conservative that way. So I would... Follow what the FDA recommends, advising against the use of CBD. The other thing, too, is the um, American College of OBGYN. They recommend um, it's marijuana is not marijuana and CBD are not recommended. So citing our uh, citing professional organizations is one thing that's that's very important instead of a website. Um knowing that you, you can get it everywhere and um, you can even get it for your animals. So um, they, they did look at the FDA in their study, did look at pet products um, as well and tested for the cannabinoids there. So they looked at beverages and capsules and gummies and edibles. So they looked at many, many different ways that people ingested CBD. Wow. I mean, that's, you know, the fact that we don't have any evidence is, is scary. And that's, you know, if 
for having these parents, moms especially, seeing this out everywhere. And like you said, it's normalized. We They, they see it and they think, oh, it's on the shelf. It, it's got to be fine for me to take, you know, right next to any other medications that you would take when you were pregnant, have a headache, whatever. So, you know, and that's why it's really important to have, you know, experts like you on the podcast. So you can enlighten us on things that we didn't even know existed, like Kratom. <laughs> and, you know, because that's the stuff that we have to know so we can counsel moms and you know we can take really uh, thorough health histories when when we're admitting these these moms into the unit with their babies um to make sure we're not missing anything um and that's you know part of nurses is you know our job as a nurse is also to keep up to date with um you know hot topics and and stuff that's out there and you know and i i really appreciate you sharing all this information and all the work you've had on it because i think it'll be very useful to um, NICU nurses when they're dealing with, um, you know, these moms that are coming in and, and making sure that we're asking them those tough questions of what what else are you taking? What other supplements are you taking? Because they may not think anything of taking CBD or Kratom because it's readily available right. and there's no information out there for them. They know they That's can't right. take certain <laughs> things, but, you know, they might not know that they can't take that. So... Right. So we sometimes have to go down the list. How about Kratom? How about Echinacea? How about, so, or how about vaping? Uh, do you vape? How often do you vape? How many milligrams of nicotine in your vape juice? Those kinds of questions are very important for us to, to ask. Um, one quarter of the um, adolescent population is, is vaping nicotine. And we know, um, being in the NICU, the babies do definitely withdraw from nicotine as well. And it, it looks like opioid withdrawal. Yeah. So asking those questions, knowing what's out there, and for us to say, hey, I saw that sign. What on earth is that stuff? Because these are places that I do not usually go in to buy things. Um, <laughs> so it's a stretch for me. I, um, I chicken out and park my car sometimes three blocks away. I'm just very chicken. <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyway, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to really, again, refresh, renew um, everything that um, I do. I was very, very lucky to find the, the new July data um, yesterday <laughs> from, the, from the Food and Drug Administration because my husband had picked up one of those free newspapers. And, and being in Washington State, this one newspaper, there must be 12 pages of all the uh, marijuana stores and CBD and specials they're having and <laughs> all so um, I was able to pick that up from him and then go do the research. So I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to be able to learn more myself. Thank you so much. We've really learned a, a whole lot. I know I did, and I know it's going to be very useful in our, our practice and make us better NICU nurses. So thank you, you so go. much for, for coming and talking with us today. Great. My pleasure. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks for your support and letting us into your ears. Have a great day.